Hi, I am James. He's raised expectations really high. I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I'll do my very best. Thank you, Jerry. <laughs> second Thessalonians. Paul's second letter to his friends in a little town called Thessalonica. Still exists today. But is it his second letter? After all of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament, they're all arranged biggest to shortest. They're not in chronological order. They're not in any geographical order of wandering around the ancient world. They're simply in length. And 1 Thessalonians is longer than 2 Thessalonians. So how do we know it's second or first? Size matters, apparently. There's all sorts of good reasons to assume that we do have the letters in the right order. And perhaps one of the easiest ways to think about it is in 1 Thessalonians, if you've had a chance to look or you heard last week, it has a whole lot of narrative in there. Paul recounts his big visit when he went there with his friends to Thessalonica. They were talking about Jesus. People were saying yes to Jesus. Lives were being changed. And then they all got into a whole lot of trouble and had to be smuggled out of town at nighttime. And he's reminding everybody all about the events so that they know the letter writer is indeed their friend, Paul. He doesn't do that in the second letter because they already know it's him. They know his style of writing and they don't need, he doesn't need to establish his credentials again. And that also means that he can get to the point fairly quickly. There's no real historical context in 2 Thessalonians. We do know from Acts 17 and 1 Thessalonians there was persecution in the church. It wasn't easy to follow Jesus in those days. It's often the case for a lot of people today. It's not easy to follow Jesus. And Paul and his friends had left, but he was worried about this little church. So he sends his friend Timothy back to see how they're doing. Timothy catches back up with the missionaries and says, they're doing great. It's going to be okay. And Paul writes his first letter. But we don't know what this prompted him to write the second letter, and probably very quickly after the first one. We, we just don't know. Last weekend, we talked a little bit about who the Thessalonians were and where they lived and what their challenges were. And if you want to go back and watch the replay, it would be really worthwhile because it'll set the context for you a little if you didn't get a chance to share with us last weekend. One of the big similarities between the two letters, another way you know it's Paul writing, are these beautiful prayers that he sprinkles throughout the letter. There were a number of them in the first letter. And in the second one, look at some of these prayers that he has. He says this, To this end, we always pray for you, asking that our God will make you worthy of his call and will fulfill by his power every good resolve and work of faith so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 16, he prays, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope. Comfort your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. Paul is praying here for courage in adversity for comfort and grief, for perseverance in their witness and their mission. I mean, could you imagine if we actually prayed for one another like that? What would be different about us at FEC if we actually prayed for each other something like that? In fact, it's these prayers that confirm to them that it is Paul writing far more than his PS at the end of the letter, sort of chapter 3, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the mark in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. And kids, if you've got your workbook in here and you open it up, you've got some scrolls that fiddle out here. If you don't do it, I'll do it for you and then we'll just be here all evening, so... Get on with this so I can have a look at it afterwards. But what was going on? Why the quick letter? 
What did Paul want them to understand so that they could build and live lives that honor God? What is the Holy Spirit saying to them? Or maybe we could just ask, what's the Holy Spirit saying to us? Not just how should they respond, but should, how should we respond so that we don't leave this letter left on read. Had a quick look, put it to the side, doesn't concern me in the least. As we read through 1 Thessalonians last weekend, you could feel the anxiety of the church. Paul and his friends, they only were able to stay there three or four weeks' time, so there wasn't a long time to teach them many things. And the people were beginning to get nervous. Some people in their little church had died. And they were worried because they kind of got this feeling that when Jesus was going to come back, only the people who were alive would see him. And their friends or their parents, they were long dead. What would happen to them? And Paul wrote to them to reassure them and to remind them that when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first. We will join them and we'll all be together with Jesus forever. There's no need to be anxious, at least about that. And we discovered that this hope of being together in Christ, it was propelling this little church forward in holiness and allowing God to change their lives in all sorts of ways that they could live life all for Jesus. But the issue this time is a little different. It's not so much anxiety as it is anticipation. You see, some of the believers in Thessalonica were so convinced Jesus was coming any minute now, they basically were just keeping an eye on the sky all the time, looking for him, waiting for something to happen. Others had got it into their head that it had already happened and it's too late for them. They've all been left behind. We're screwed. And there was another group who were just like, I have no idea what's going on. Somebody tell me. And once again, Paul is going to teach them about hope. Only this time we do discover it's hope that leads to mission. The little church had faced severe opposition. Following Jesus was far from easy. And we know that in many places around our world, even today, it's far from easy. None of us looks actually for hardship, I don't think. We admire those that tough it out when we read the stories. We pray for them. But we would prefer character development or sanctification or being conformed to the image of Christ, or holiness, or the fruit of the Spirit growing in me, we would prefer that to happen by other means. Reading a book, maybe. Going to an online seminar. Sitting down in a real face-to-face conference. Wonderful worship, but certainly not trouble and hardship and anxiety. Nobody needs that. Oddly enough, though, in the Bible... The life of faith is so often portrayed as filled with difficulties and problems. You don't have to read very far into the opening pages of the Bible to realize that people that are given their lives completely to God suffer because of their friendship with God. Abel was murdered by his brother. Noah mocked and ridiculed by everybody while he's building his ark. Prophets who were actually killed because they were speaking God's word. And you get to the New Testament and this sort of thing continues along. You read this, Jesus preparing his disciples when he says, in the world you will face persecution, but take courage, I've conquered the world. In this world we will have trouble, another translation will put it, and no kidding, And Jesus' little brother James would put it like this. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face various trials, consider it all joy. Really? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance complete its work. So that you may be complete and whole, lacking in nothing. And then the apostle Peter chimes in. 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention, for whoever has suffered in the flesh is finished with sin. And Paul writes to his friends, the Thessalonians, and he says in chapter 2, or chapter 1, verse 4, Therefore, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are reading, that you are bearing. That's tough reading. I mean, it's a fairly convincing argument, but it's actually tough reading. We're a whole lot more into the sort of hashtag blessed because I got a nice car and I got a nice home because we got to go on holiday because everything's working out well for me and we're blessed. There's nothing wrong with those things. Don't mishear me. Nothing wrong with them. But Paul actually sees afflictions, pain, heartache, grief, struggle. Paul sees these things as a sign of God's favor. Not that he's abandoned you. I don't know many of us that think that way. He tells us that these things are a sign of God's favor with us. Not that he's abandoned you and left you in the stuck and you don't know what to do. Me? I just end up asking him, shouting, Where are you, God? To which he usually replies, right here. What do you expect? But what do you expect? What do you actually expect of God when life is hard? This is probably our biggest left on red moment as we read through these letters. Because we don't want to answer the question. We don't want to answer it honestly. Because we would much prefer that God gave us perfect lives and perfect relationships and a perfect family and perfect health and perfect job and lots of money and the sun's always shining. That's what we'd like. And we also know better because life is hard and bad stuff happens and people get hurt. And we don't know why. And it's just difficult. There doesn't always seem to be any meaning or purpose in it. And people will trot out platitudes to you, telling you God won't give you more than you can handle. Can I tell you that's not true? It's not in the Bible, and it's also not true. You will have plenty happen to you in your life that you cannot handle. You can't. But it will force you to desperately seek after the one who can help you and hold you and carry you and lead you. And we desperately need Jesus. Interestingly, Paul, he doesn't shy away from all this difficult stuff. And one of the most difficult passages in this letter is found in chapter 1. It's all about judgment and payback and vengeance and punishment, destruction and separation. Here's what you read in chapter 1 beginning at verse 6. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a fiery flame, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Mm. 
There's all sorts of reasons why we're a little hesitant to think about that or talk about it, about Jesus coming back as a judge, because it's nicer to talk about God's love. As if we could separate the two things. Sometimes I think we just don't get around to talking about it because honestly, stuff in our world just seems so horrifically wrong. How could it ever change? We get dismayed. Or we just think the world's going to keep on spinning. You know, we'll do our 70 or 80 or 90 years. It'll keep on spinning. Nothing will change. And some of us, honestly, we love Jesus. But this whole rising from the dead thing, really? Do we really believe that? But if it is true, if it is true that Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended on high and sits at the seat of the right hand of the Father in heaven and that he is coming again, if it is true, then what would God's options be? Just let things be? Let evil run rampant forever? That seems fairly lame. Or he could just force us all to be good, but I guess we'd be like little robots just doing what we're told. Or he could destroy everything and try once more. Kind of a bit of a failure, but who knows? Or he could return and bring judgment and root out evil once and for all. God's wrath exists because of his love. He can't help but respond to the evil in the world that destroys everything that he created to be good. I don't think we'd want them to do any less when we think of some of the horrific stories that happened for some of us, at least in our own lifetime, of Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or ISIS. There should be justice for the things that happened in former Yugoslavia, Somalia, Rwanda, Iraq, Ukraine right now. There should be. We like justice. We abhor injustice. Do you know why? Because we bear the very image of God. We're made in God's image. And the things that tick God off sometimes do that to us. And we don't always know why, but that's why. We're shaped that way. A theologian, Miroslav Volf, he lived in the former Yugoslavia, right through all of the disaster that happened when the country broke apart. But he said this, once we accept the appropriateness of God's wrath, condemnation, and judgment, there's no way of keeping it out there reserved for others. Because we're all infected with the human stain. We have all sinned and fallen short. Everyone, me, you, you watching at home, all of us. You see, while we might not be comfortable talking about it, God's judgment is a reality. But it's also good news because God is a lover and not a destroyer. I went to see Oppenheimer movie a couple of weeks ago. Not Barbie, just want to clarify. There was no, I didn't do Barbie and then the other one just to. I was struck though how this dude, father of the atomic bomb, he quotes a Hindu scripture, a phrase in there, when he says this, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Do any of you remember him saying that in the movie? I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. A poignant moment. But God is not a destroyer. His justice is not a reign of terror. It is a justice of peace that brings love and compassion. Pain and suffering and evil are coming to an end. God's righteous rule will be over his world. His kingdom will come and his will will be done perfectly on earth the way it is in heaven. There will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more dying, he says. 
And in Jesus, God the Father has done everything possible to make it possible for you and for me to discover and enjoy his presence forever, to come home and be part of the family, to discover that we are loved and chosen by him. And Jesus makes that possible. Have you said yes to Jesus? You see, there is a day coming of total and complete and perfect justice. And on that day, that Jesus that knows all of our hearts and all of our thoughts and all of our minds and all of our lives (laughs) and everybody who's ever lived and everything we've ever said and everything we've ever done, (laughs) he gets to be the judge. And he sees beyond my carefully curated Instagram image of myself to the real me in here. That's what he discovers. And he invites us to place our trust in him. We read in John's gospel, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, we're being judged not on some unknown criteria that we can't figure out, but we're judged on the basis of our response to Jesus. We judge ourselves. When Jesus comes, he simply confirms the judgment that we already made. Rob Staples puts it like this. He says, the last judgment will be the divine ratification of the relationship with Jesus that we have chosen in this life. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, put it like this. At the end of the day, God will look at you and say, your will be done. Have it your way. If we choose to live life without him and his love and his mercy, he will not compel us. But we can know him and we can trust him. Even here, right now and today, whether you're in the big room or you're watching online, we can. We can choose to surrender our lives to Jesus. We can ask him to become a part of our lives that begins to change who we are and what we do and what we live for and how we work our way through life as he reorients us away from selfishness and sinfulness and gives us the Holy Spirit who changes us and strengthens us to live life the way he intended us to do. But just because there's justice one day doesn't mean that everything is okay right now. It doesn't mean that you won't get angry with God or that you should never get angry with him. It doesn't mean that you can't protest at injustice or struggle for equality or human rights. It doesn't mean that you do not grieve in your sorrow. It doesn't mean that you have to start avoiding reality and being weird. It does mean, though, that in the struggle, in the struggle, we discover Jesus because Jesus is changing everything. I had a conversation with somebody recently about toppling over and falling. Like me, they've got balance issues. And in our conversation, I was reminded of Jesus who fell over under the weight of the cross and he couldn't get up without somebody to help him. He knows what it's like to stumble and fall just as he knows what pain feels like or grief or abandonment or betrayal or death. And in our struggle, we can find Jesus. It really is about perspective, how we view the world and our place in it because hope recognizes that God is up to something, that what is now is not what will always be because Jesus is changing things. New Testament scholar Nijay Gupta 
once wrote this and he said, hope in the Christian vocabulary is a worldview word. If faith represents the resilience and reliance upon an alternative reality based on God's revelation to his work and words vis-a-vis the past and the present, then hope involves the sustaining of an alternative view of reality based on what God has promised to do in the future. Christians don't simply look ahead in order to be done with life and float away to eternal bliss in heaven. They lean on hope to survive, live, and even thrive in the present by seeing it through God's eyes and particularly God's promises about what he's going to do because God is up to something. There is hope. He's keeping his promises. And in this letter, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul talks about the big promise like this. It's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 2, verse 1. There's the big promise. And what does that mean? He details it out if you start reading through chapter 2. The day of the Lord, he tells them in verse 2, has not yet come. You don't need to worry that you've missed it. It's not happened yet. It's okay. And then he says in verse 3, a number of things will happen first. So calm down, everybody. Things will get worse before they get better. Okay, maybe we're not so calm. Then there will be a rebellion of of people who once claimed to know God in chapter 3. There will be a great enemy characterized by disobedience to God, the lawless one he's called in chapter three, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He exalts himself above everybody else and demands to be worshipped. He takes a seat even in God's temple. He serves under Satan and will deceive others, even using miracles. God, who's allowed a restrainer to hold back the lawless one for a while in verses 6 through 8, And yet, despite how harrowing all these things will be, the Lord Jesus will come and destroy the lawless one effortlessly with the breath of his mouth when he returns in verse (sighs) 8. That's a lot to wrap our head around. Who's the lawless one? He's the absolute antithesis of Christ. It's almost like compare and contrast. If you look your way through some of these verses, you'll see that. Paul describes both Jesus and the lawless one as having a coming or an appearance in chapter 2, verse 1, and then in verses 8 and 9. He'll say that both are revealed in chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 8, same word. Both represent other powers. Jesus represents God the Father. The lawless one represents Satan. In many ways, you could see the lawless one as Jesus in reverse. So he's antichrist. He's anti-human for that matter, anti-holiness, anti-God. Curiously, Paul never uses the word antichrist ever in his writings. Only John does. And actually four times for all the movies and books you've read, there's only four times that word shows up in your Bible. The lawless one, though, is the final attempt of the cosmic powers to wrest victory from the hand of God and destroy God's people. That's what we see here. It takes place when God, who controls our world and has restrained evil, holds the restrainer back. And for a short while, these evil powers operate, but it's short-lived, and the doom of the lawless one is assured. 
I know it's easy to get caught up in speculation. I mean, I was writing this and thinking, wow, this is really interesting. Spent hours looking at all sorts of things that didn't get me an inch forward in my study, really. Some of the early Christians thought the lawless one must be somebody who's going to emulate a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes, who had made a sacrifice to, Jer- to the god Zeus in the Jerusalem temple and desecrated it, the abomination of desolation. Such a terrible thing to do. Some of them thought it was maybe somebody like the Roman emperor Gaius, known as Caligula, who wanted to put a statue of himself in the temple that had no images, but he wanted that. And people have been trying to figure it out. But Paul's point here is not trying to solve or assuage your curiosities about the future. He's not even trying to diffuse panic if we think this is going to be terrible. What he's doing is saying the losing side is going to lose. Not just simply because it's weaker. The losing side is going to lose because it's lawless and because it's wicked. There is hope. The final chapter of the story is yet to be written and God writes the final chapter. And while Paul is not giving some sort of photograph of the future here so we can try and figure it all out, he does at least give orientation or direction as we lean into our future and try to think what may happen. Which means it is appropriate in some ways when we look at human beings whose analogy is quite close to the lawless one to think about them, whether they're clothed in the royal robes of Babylon or the imperial garments of the Roman Empire or the swastika of the Third Reich. In so many ways, they are anti-Christ. But Paul reminds us that this lawless one's power remains deceptive in chapter 2, verse 10. And as history confirms, not everyone figures it out. Just as those committed today to some form of Christian civic religion or Christian nationalism may not recognize the lawless one for who he is. Any more than people actually recognize Jesus for who he was when he walked this earth. Think about it. And even more importantly, Paul provides detail, but not a timeline that we can work on to figure out the end of the world. He simply doesn't do it. He does remind them and us that God is in control. And while he might not work on our timescale, we can have hope. And that hope leads to mission. It propels us into action. In Thessalonica, things had gone off the rails. Some people were so obsessed with the return of Jesus, they'd pretty much given up on life and given up on work. They're just sort of lying back in their recliner, looking at the sky, waiting for something to happen. Paul says this in chapter 3. We hear that some of you are living irresponsibly, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Slackers, idlers, loafers, busybodies, waiting for the end of the world like a doomsday cult, not working, just waiting. And Paul has strong words for them in verse 12. Such persons we command and exhort at the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Even today, There are lots of followers of Jesus, confident of their heavenly home, that spend their time on earth just sitting on the bench. Well, you may actually go to work and earn a living, but we don't get involved in God's mission very much. We attend church services, but we pass up on opportunities to connect with others in a small group. Opportunities to grow in discipleship and faith. Opportunities to serve God by serving others. Opportunities to share the good news of Jesus and words and deeds all over the place. We call those things our life commitments. Connect, grow, serve, and share. You see it everywhere. in The flags in the parking lot, banners in the main street as you walk around, all over the building and our website. We see it everywhere. So can I ask you how you're doing? Has hope pushed you towards mission? Are you connecting? 
or just being a busybody? Are you growing or just idling? Are you serving or being a slacker? Are you sharing or just loafing on the couch? Another big left on red moment. Ah, don't make me feel guilty. Just because Jesus is Lord doesn't mean we all sit around and do nothing. Our purpose is not to snuggle up on the couch and watch Netflix. We're not called to that. Rather, Paul's encouraging them and he's encouraging us to devote ourselves to godly living, to getting involved with the great things that God is already doing in our world. It's not really an option. It should become our consuming passion as we live lives all for Jesus. You see, work, our activity, mission has a certain texture to it when it's done in Jesus' name. And what is it? Paul says in chapter 3, verse 13, Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. What is right? The prophet Micah would say, right is doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. What is right? Jesus' brother James said, right is caring for widows and orphans in their distress. What is right? God told the people of Israel that right is not mistreating or oppressing resident aliens because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. What is right? Jesus said it's to love your neighbor as yourself. What is right? Jesus said right is bringing good news to the poor, proclaiming release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and letting the oppressed go free. This is God's work for us and there's lots to do. It's time to pray with our feet and heal with our hands and join the redemptive work that God is already up to in our world. It's time for us to be on mission with him. But does that make it easier? Well, not really. Because no matter how much Paul encourages us, sometimes we do get weary. At least I do. You get weary from working hard. And not always seeing the results you hope for. You get weary for saying the same things over and over again and seemingly nobody listens and nothing changes. You get weary when it seems as though evil always prevails. You get weary from serving the least of these and facing endless challenges and can barely practice self-care. You get weary from working for the common good of everybody else who doesn't always care. You'll get weary. Paul could get weary. And left to our own devices and our own resources, our own strength, we get weary. That's why Paul's prayer in chapter 3 matters so much as we read this tiny letter. Here's what he prays. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us so that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified everywhere just as it is among you and that we may be rescued from wicked and evil people for not all have faith. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will go on doing the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. What a prayer. Because we need the Lord's strength. We need him to guard us. We need his love. We need his steadfastness. We need Jesus. And the focus of Paul's letter is not so much on the suffering or the judgment or the end times or even how we use our time right now. His focus is on Jesus because Jesus changes everything and Jesus always wins. I love how Paul both opens and closes this unique little letter. Even with all the hardship that his friends face, even with all their concerns about the end times and how confused they are, Paul speaks of peace. 
He opens like this. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he closes in chapter chapter 3. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in all ways. The Lord be with you all. He's telling us we can live our lives surrounded by peace. Even when they're falling apart. We can. Right here. Right now. Jesus himself can be with us. And hold us. Right here. Right now. Do you want to say yes to Jesus with me? Do you want to say yes to Jesus with me? Then let's pray. Father is... Reading this little letter is complicated. Three page, three chapters and so complex. And yet the shining reality of Jesus' love for us dominates everything. And we gather here recognizing many of us that we do have hurts, things that we don't like to talk about, where life is hard and we feel crushed and perplexed. But thank you that Jesus is the one who knows and understands who picks us up and surrounds us with peace and can change everything in ways that we don't even begin to understand. Not simply the circumstances, but change our lives. And so we pray that you would have your way in working deep within our hearts. Lord, we want to pray tonight for people that are trying to say yes to Jesus because you never have done before. And we're praying, Lord Jesus, would you come and grab hold of my life? Because it's going sideways. It's mostly my own fault. And so today I want to tell you I'm sorry. I want to ask for forgiveness for the things I know I've done wrong and the plenty of things I'm probably not even aware of. And I pray that in faith that you will come to me and change me and live within me. That I can be a follower like these Thessalonians were, even though it's hard. And that you would guide me forward and lead me to know what it is to be your brother and to discover the wonders of God in my life. And so today I choose to say yes to you, surrendering all I've got and asking you to come and fill me and make me yours. And Father, as we pray, we recognize that most of us, if not all of us, we could do with peace. We live within our turmoil. And we pray this evening that even in the quiet of this moment, we would sense your peace because we sense your presence. And we don't always come here just to get a tingle up the spine. But Lord, tonight we are saying, may your peace manifest itself in us in a way that is so tangible that we can know you hold us, you hold the future, you hold eternity. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.